All right, so church is the time to study the Word of God, so that's what we're going to do today, and I'm so excited because in church, we always talk about grace. Uh, we talk about God's grace and, and the new covenant, and, and so today we're going to really dive in, and we're going to find out why grace is so awesome, why we talk about it all the time, and hopefully you will leave today and, and go into our potluck after church today so just blown away at God's love for you, God's care and compassion for you, and God's, God's amazing grace. Uh, you guys have all heard the song, Amazing Grace, right? And, and a lot of times we grow up singing that song thinking that grace is just being forgiven of your sins. And that is part of grace. It is part of grace, but it is not all of grace. Do you guys know about um, uh, icebergs? Anyone experts here on icebergs? Okay, well, if you're not... I am not, but just kidding. If I was, I would tell you that icebergs are very famous for being bigger under the water than they are on top. So basically, when you look and see an iceberg, you're only seeing 10%. 90% of the iceberg is under water. You can't see how big an iceberg really is just by looking at the top. And that is the illustration that we have for grace, that grace is so much more than just what we see at the very beginning when our sins have been forgiven. That's, a, that's just the top of grace. So we'll get into that. So uh, as we start, uh, we always have to pray. We have to, we have to pray so that our hearts are open and soft for God to, um, to work in us. And so let's go ahead and come before God. Father, we, we come before you and we're clothed in the blood of Jesus as we believe in what he has done for us. And Father, we pray that you would open up the word of God so that we can understand it. I pray we would hear your promises and that our heart would be filled to believe them, would be, that we would be filled with belief and faith. Lord, help us when we come to a place that we're challenged, that we, we maybe think we don't believe this yet. Help us, Lord, to see that, recognize it, and humbly confess our unbelief, so that you can transform us by your grace and your power. Jesus, we thank you so much for coming to this earth and, and giving us a new covenant. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So uh, these notes you can kind of follow along with. I'm going to kind of follow them, but go through it as I would if we were meeting one-on-one -on -one and if we were just talking about this today. Uh, so we're in lesson number three talking about the new covenant. Lesson number one was just an introduction, talking about what grace is. And number two, lesson number two, if you remember three weeks ago when we studied that, it was about the law. And so, pop quiz, what was the law all about? What is the message of the law? And you can totally cheat and look right on your paper because I put it right there. So no Jesus points for any of you. Uh, <laughs> it says, be holy be loving, and be perfect. That's the message of the law. And we went through those verses last time we studied what the law says. Be holy, be loving, be perfect. But what is the law unable to do? The Ten Commandments, God's standard, is unable to make you holy. It's unable to make you loving. And it's unable to make you perfect. And that's kind of mean. It says you should be this way, but I'm not going to help you be that way. That's what the law is. And we learned that that's glorious because that's what the law was designed to do. So anytime you have thought, you know what? 
I am going to do what God says. I'm going to try my best. I'm going to offer him this sacrifice of my best effort to keep his law. We were doing it wrong. That is not what he has asked us to do. Jesus never said, do your best to keep the law. He said, keep the law 100%, never fail or die. That's God's standard. God, the law has no mercy built in. It has no um, uh, wiggle room. The law is so high, it demands holiness, love, and perfection all the time, every moment of the day, and that is what we will be judged by, and every single one of us will fall short, right? And that's what the law says. But that's why we have to study today God's grace. But we have to see law first, because unless you see that the law demands such high perfection, you will never have a thirst for grace. Unless you see that the law demands more than you could ever give, you won't be thankful for God's grace. You won't even sense your need for God's grace. So I hope that every single one of us today can admit, I am a sinner. I have fallen short of God's standard, and that's real. We have. I sin. I, I, every one of us needs to have a real heart uh, idea that we have sinned. We need to buy into that. But the new covenant, once we realize that we're sinners, the new covenant of God's grace comes in and it provides for us all that we need and all that we want through the life of Jesus Christ. And that's where everyone says, amen. That's awesome. <laughs> it's awesome. Because we need so much. We need so much. And God's new covenant of grace does provide all that we need. The law demands that we be holy. Guess what? The new covenant provides holiness. The law demands we be loving. The new covenant changes our hearts so that we actually become loving. The law demands perfection. The new covenant lifts us up so that God views us and sees us in reality as perfect. How amazing is that? And this is all bought and paid for by what? Anyone know? The blood of Jesus Christ. That's why we're always talking about the blood of Jesus at church. is because it was the price that was paid for you to just say, I believe. I'll believe it. Once you say you believe, you get it all. Once you truly believe, you get everything Jesus bought and paid for for you. So, First thing that we're going to study when, when we look at the new covenant of grace is the, the thing most people understand. It's called justification. Um, and that is what we call, it's a big church word that means starting out with God. When you, you know, back when you used to do drugs and used to, you know, whatever your sins were, then you believed the gospel and you were born again. And you know that the, the weight of the guilt was lifted off your shoulders by the blood of Christ. You started out with God. That is the beginning of a relationship with God. And that is brought to you all by grace. And we see that in Romans 3.24. Look, it says, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Just a simple verse, meaning justification is freely offered to you. You get all your sins washed away. His grace is what saves us by redeeming us by the blood of Jesus, all your sins freely forgiven. But again, this is just the, if I were to go around and ask a bunch of Christians, a hundred Christians, and survey them and say, what is grace? You know what the top answer I would get is? 
My sins are forgiven. That's, and that's true. It's great. But it's just the tip of the iceberg because what do most Christians do for the rest of their lives? Not a whole lot. We, we struggle and we know that we're supposed to grow, but we're kind of stuck just remembering that Jesus forgave us of our sins. But in this verse, we also see that grace is free, and it's always free because the price was paid. Let's look at this next verse, Romans 4.16. Therefore, it is of faith that it might be according with grace, so that the promise might be sure to all the seed, not only of those who are of the law, but those who are the faith of Abraham, who is the father of of us all. So we look at this verse and we see Abraham. We saw him in the book of Genesis. We studied him a lot. And, uh, and Abraham is showing us how grace works for justification, this starting out with God. And it shows that, that it must be faith that connects us with grace. That's how grace works. That's how the new covenant works. You have to believe it. There's nothing that you do to earn it. It's just believing. That is how you get it. I want grace. Great. Believe it. There's really nothing I can do. What about being baptized as a baby? Doesn't that get me grace? No. What about this other work? What about helping old ladies across the street? Surely. What about voting for the right person? No. None, nothing we can do gets us grace. It must be faith, it says. Because works can never accord with grace, it says. Accord is a word that just means it goes with it. Works can't do that. Works don't work with grace. I like that one. (laughs) As soon as you have something to do, grace ceases to be grace. As soon as you think you need to work for it or earn it, grace ceases to be grace. And God refuses to engage with his people, which is us, in any way but through grace. Anytime we come and say, God, I'm going to give you more today. I'm going to give you a better effort today. God shuts his face to you and says, I am not going to deal with you in that way. You will not earn what my son has bought to you. Do you see how offensive that is to God? God, I know that Jesus did all this and wants to give me it, but will you just look at me and how hard I'm going to try and then maybe you'll give me some? And God's like, listen, I was offering you all of this based on what my son Jesus did for you. Why would you reject what he did in favor of what you can give me? Stop. I'm not going to deal with you in that way. Does that make sense? Yeah, it's kind of offensive to God. But grace Grace makes the promise, sure, God made a promise, and he said it's going to be by grace so that you can feel the guarantee of it. I love when something's guaranteed, when something is sure, like we will beat the Browns, you know, that's just, (laughs) but that wasn't based on grace, that was based on works, and oh, so wishy-washy. So, see, grace is not able to fail because it's not dependent on your strength, your performance. It's not a maybe or a distant hope. It is sure because we enter into grace by faith, by believing it, and it's guaranteed because it's his works that provide for it. His works are what earn it. And this is where we get the term assurance of salvation. You can be absolutely sure that you're saved and going to heaven. 
as long as your confidence is not in you, but your confidence is in what Jesus has done. If that's what you hope in. And guess what? I can't read your mind and your heart. I don't know what's going on inside you, so I can't give you assurance of salvation, but you can know. I try to earn it from God, and I'm hoping that God will see me as worthy. I'm sorry, you're probably going to go to hell. Or I know that I'm a sinner and I will trust in the grace of Christ and the blood of Jesus that washed me from sin. I will believe that and I can offer you full assurance of salvation if that is where your heart is. Wasn't that deep? It kind of is like, wow, how great confidence we can have that we are his people when our confidence is in what Jesus has done only. I can't offer you confidence if your confidence is in yourself if your hope is in yourself. So justification, honestly, most of you guys understand that because uh, you pretty much have to understand that to be saved. You pretty much have to understand that Jesus is offering to wash away your sins. So that's the very beginning of walking with God. That's how we start out with God. We're going to move on now to being sanctified. And that is the process from the day you get saved to the day you die of becoming more Christ-like growing in your relationship with God. Um, And this is where the most of the confusion happens in the church because a lot of times people get saved and they throw a party. Oh, I'm so happy to be saved. And then they have no idea what to do the next day when they grow up. So they ask people, what am I supposed to do? And they say, read the Bible, pray, go to church, start doing good works. And all of those things, some of them can develop a good relationship with the Lord, but none of those things are what the Bible says actually grow us. It's not what grows us. Grace is what will grow us, as we'll see. Look at Titus chapter 2, verse 11 and 12. It says, For the grace of God that brings salvation, okay, has appeared to all men, teaching us. What teaches us? The grace of God. Not the law. See, a lot of Christians, they get saved, and the first thing they do is they throw up a a copy of the Ten Commandments on their wall, and they say, that's what I'm going to do for the rest of my life. And what happens after two or three weeks, or two or three years, or two or three decades? They get burnt out because they realize they cannot do it. They're going through their own strength. They're going through their own efforts to try to be what God wants them to be, the standard, But God's grace is not at work because that is intrinsically self-sourced. It is me trying to be what God wants me to be instead of the gospel, which says God will transform you. Absent of your works, absent from your effort, God will transform you. Look what it says. The grace of God that brings salvation has appeared, teaching us that denying ungodliness, worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age. So many Christians want to think that the way to improve their lives is to focus on the law. And Jesus says it's actually, here, Paul says to to Timothy, or to Titus, it is grace that will transform you and teach you how to be godly. Becoming a Christian has nothing to do with your performance according to the law. And becoming a better Christian also has nothing to do with your performance according to the law. Now, Does that mean we're all going to go sin and not care because we're not under the law anymore? And the answer is absolutely not. But the way we transform is not 
by looking at the law and loving the law for the law's own sake. The way we're transformed into, what does it say, soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age is by grace. Grace does a transforming work. It doesn't just give you a license to say, go sin. Here's your license. You have a right to just go sin and do whatever you want, and God will never be mad at you. That's not it. It is a transformed heart that doesn't want to sin anymore. A transformed heart that, that is truly free. And whenever we sense that that's not the case, the solution is not, oh, I got to go look at the law and find out where I'm failing. The solution is to go abide in Christ and remember what he did for you in grace and the new covenant. So um, only grace can train a child of God. Law-focused, performance-based religion, which is how many, many of us have grown up, can never truly teach a heart to keep the law. It can't change a heart. But grace is a transforming power. It's a force that is able to teach and train our hearts. Grace is the only way to become godly. And that is what we call sanctification. The process of changing to being more godly, more Christ-like. Look at 2 Timothy 2, verse 1. It says, you therefore, my son, be strong in keeping all the rules because they are so important to keep all the rules and it makes God happy. That's that's not what I said? Oh, I must have read it. I didn't have my reading glasses on, so sometimes I get things confused. My son, be strong in giving your best to God every day and making sure you're just doing everything right to please God. Oh, that was wrong too? Oh my goodness, should have studied this beforehand. (laughs) He says, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Where does strength come from? Man, I wish I was a stronger Christian. I wish I was a stronger believer. I wish, I, I wish, I wish, I wish. Strength comes from grace. God's new covenant of grace is what empowers and strengthens us that we can walk the way God wants us to walk. Not only forgiven, but holy and loving and righteous. This is how it happens. He says here, Timothy, you need to focus on grace every day. And that's what will strengthen you. But grace is not something you do. Grace is something God gives. So we are to be in a constant state, day after day, of receiving grace instead of doing things. Receiving grace needs to be our focus. That is how we will be strengthened. And so the things that you, the good works you do accomplish will be empowered by this grace. And we're not going to be trying to do more and be more, we're going to have our hands open, relaxed, at rest, and at peace. And that is the life God has for his children, for you. He wants you to live like this. Just give me, God, what Jesus has bought for me. Give it to me. I need it. The opposite of grace is law. So 
Many struggling Christians believe that investing in law and in rules will produce a strong walk with God, but it's wrong. You know what I, how I hear this a lot and how I see this? You know what? I'm really struggling with being a good person, so will you be my accountability partner? And will you help, me, help set me up some boundaries and some rules for my life so that I don't go to those places? And we think that that is helping us be a better person, or that's helping us honor God or walk with God when it's actually harming your relationship with God. Because let's say you succeed. Let's say your accountability partner calls you every day and says, you're not doing it, right? You're not doing that. You're not doing that. You're not doing that. And let's say you succeed because he's bothering you so much. Then who gets the glory for your success? God or you? You have stolen the glory that God has purchased with the blood of Christ. He offered you the freedom you needed through the blood of Christ, and you have chosen to take that glory from God and say, I didn't need God in the first place. I just needed an accountability partner. Really, what was lacking in your life was an accountability partner? No, what was lacking was the Spirit of Christ, God's Holy Spirit. And that's what we have to seek. God's grace provides to us the Holy Spirit. And so... Instead of setting up rules, we have to seek a transformed life. That's what we're talking about here. That's how sanctification works. That's how strength works in God's economy. Strength is from saying, I don't have strength. God, give me strength, provided for me through what Jesus did, and that's what will strengthen your spirit and transform you. Make sense? All right, let's go further. Hebrews 13, 9. Do not be carried about with various and strange doctrines, for it is good for the heart to be established by what? Grace, Grace, not with foods which have not profited those who have been occupied by them. He brings up foods there, and whenever in Hebrews or in the New Testament or Old Testament, foods are mentioned and rules and laws according to foods, it it has to do with law. And, And so literally, if you never ate pigs, you were considered a better person because you were following God's rules. And that's, that's what that's all about. And so here he says that doesn't help anybody. It doesn't profit anybody following these silly rules. Doesn't help you become a better Christian. In fact, when it comes to sanctification, when it comes to growing in the Lord, uh, let me describe to you how most of the time I see it. People are doing good. They feel like they're doing great. Because they're, oh, look, I'm, I'm doing good according to God's law. And then what happens is they start to break God's laws. They start to stumble, start to trip. And so they start feeling really bad about themselves. And then they get near the bottom and they're like, man, I'm terrible. And then they remember Jesus and his blood and his, sacri- and his forgiveness. And they start climbing again. And so if you take this in a big form, this is what a Christian usually looks like. I'm happy, I'm sad. I'm happy, I'm sad. I'm happy, I'm sad. Sound familiar? Yeah. Oh my gosh. We go through that all the time. And God says here, what he is going to do is he is going to change this cycle to look more like this. Not super amazingly like hyper and not really, really low, but right here in the middle, he says, I'm going to establish your heart. So instead of the up and down, it's more of an established heart. When we think of ourselves and what we need to do ourselves, we, we get like excited. We start to go up. We start to think, man, I could do this. Let me, let me give my best effort. We start to experience a little success and we're really happy. Then we fail. So then we're 
in despair. We're, we're really sad. Grace changes our heart from looking at our circumstances to looking at what Jesus did for us. So when, we're, when our focus is on us, this is what you're going to look like. When your focus is on Christ and his grace and what he did, this is what you'll look like. Because when you start to go up, you'll be like, wait a second, Jesus says I need to humble myself. I'm not that great. So I'm not going to get super high on my performance. I'm not going to think I'm doing really good today. I'm just trusting Christ. And then when I start to go down and the enemy says, like, starts banging on you and saying, you are terrible and you're a bad person, you're going to, Christ's work on you is going to remind you that you've been forgiven and you're loved and you're adored by God and you're his child. So it keeps you from going too high, keeps you from going too low, keeps you just in an established, steady relationship with God. Make sense? All right. Let's focus on that part. It is good for the heart to be established by grace, not with food, not with foods which have not profited those who have been occupied by them. Those foods were these rules, and people thought they were a better person if they kept and followed these rules. God's unearned, undeserved favor, which is grace, causes the heart to rest in spite of our performance doing good or our failure doing bad. So we are going to go through many times in life where someone comes to you and says, hey, you are, I think you're doing pretty good because I've seen you at church a lot, or I've seen you doing a lot of good works. Or you might even think that about yourself. Hey, I haven't been doing drugs. I must be doing better. Worldly, in man's way of thinking, yeah, that, that does make sense that you're doing better. But what God is looking at is on the, in the heart and the fruit. He knows that why you turned to those drugs was not because you're an addict per se, but because you were an idolater. It was idolatry. You were looking to this as a God to meet your needs. And God is training us to instead of turning to drugs or turning to relationships or turning to whatever we turn to, to turn to him and his grace instead. He demands to be our God. He wants to be our savior. He loves us. So he says, turn to me or else it's idolatry. Does that make sense? Okay. Let's look at Proverbs chapter 4. We're going to look at a couple of verses here quickly that show that God is more concerned about the heart and what is going on inside the heart. Again, if you're following rules, great. But that doesn't mean that your heart has been transformed. Grace is the only thing that guarantees that our heart can be transformed. So in other words, one person could be breaking some of God's laws, but they're learning to trust him. They're, tr they're learning to believe in him. And so God says their heart is actually in the process of being transformed. And another person never breaks the really bad God you know, laws and they, their performance looks pretty good on the outside. But, what that mean, but, but God looks at them and says, yeah, but they don't, they don't trust me. They don't rely upon me. They're relying on their own performance of these rules. And that is what causes a major problem between them and God. Because Proverbs, look at Proverbs. It says 4.23, keep your heart with all diligence for out of it springs the issues of life. Again, we've learned law cannot change the heart. 
So our whole life flows out of our hearts, so what are we supposed to do? In Matthew 12, 34, Jesus is talking to, and, and he says, brood of vipers, how can you, being evil, speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. In church, we should not be reforming people's behavior. You know how in politics they talk about legislating morality? Like, let's make a law that you're supposed to be nice to everybody. Well, people aren't going to be nice to everybody because you can't make a law that transforms whether someone likes you or not or loves you. You can't legislate morality. 2 Peter 3.18, he says, But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and forever. Amen. So the heart that God is transforming is one that is growing in grace. Our command by, from Peter here is to grow in grace, not grow in keeping the law. This is truly how to know Jesus. It says grow in grace and knowing Christ. Intimacy with Jesus can only be by grace. You will never get closer to Jesus by keeping rules. It doesn't work. That is called performance-based religion. And if that was the case, then the Jews had a really close relationship with Jesus. But they didn't because they murdered him. They killed him. And they didn't know God. And Jesus was always railing on them because they didn't really know God. Because they thought God was looking for law-keeping slaves and not children with his own heart. That's what the difference is. That's what was going on. Grace is also for growing here. He says, grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus. This is a total trust and dependency upon God's faithfulness. And it glorifies God. When God's the one that transforms you, he gets the glory. And it's awesome. When we trust in our actions and our performance and our efforts, we are simply glorifying ourselves. So should you get tired and worn out and burnt out following Christ? The answer is no. You should be receiving his life in you, his help moment by moment, and that is the the right of every child of God, is to be receiving this life. So if grace is God's gift to transform us and draw us near to himself, how do I get God's grace? And this is the part where I hope you get really pumped up and excited and, and just overwhelmed with God's goodness because all of you should be asking at this point, okay, so I'm smelling what you're stepping in. Grace is all I need. I, I, I get it that it's not law, but it's grace. So what, it, what, what do I need to do to get God to give me this grace? Here we go. Second Corinthians 8, 9. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. Jesus wants to give you this grace. It's his riches, and he is just desperate to pour them out upon you. He says here that you have been given them already. This grace has already been given to you. So the real problem with us is not getting God to give you the grace. It's getting you to open up your hands to receive it. Open up your heart to receive it. So let's look at that. 2 Corinthians 9, 8. 
8, 9, and then 9, 8. Here he says, God is able to make all grace abound towards you that you always having all sufficiency in all things may have an abundance for every good work. Now I'm going to read that verse again, but with a little emphasis, okay? God is able to make all grace abound toward you that you always having all sufficiency in all things may have an abundance for every good work. Did that change a little bit of how you heard it? That verse? God loves to give you grace and he is offering you everything that you need by this grace for every good work for everything you're called to do, everything a human being should be is being offered to you right now through his grace. He is able to make all this grace abound towards you. How are we going to do good works? How are we going to have what we need inside to be loving, to be holy, to be perfect? It is by this grace. Let's look at James 4, 6, because this is going to show us how, how this works. We're almost done. We just have a little bit left. James 4, 6, it says, but he gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So he has all this grace, all this sufficiency that he is offering to you. And he says, I am giving it to you. And here's the requirement that I demand of you. Humility. Humility, and that's it, humility. And it, it, it is such a, a divine standard and law. This is a law that you can bank on. God will give you grace if you're humble, but he will oppose you if you're proud. Now, here's the thing. If you think you can keep God's law, are you humble or proud? Proud. Proud. But wait, no, 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 I'm, I'm just doing my best. Is that humble or proud? Proud. Well, I don't need to give all my life over to God. I don't need to surrender control of everything over to God. Humble or proud? Proud. It's not that hard for you to figure out what's humble and what's proud. We know this. Now, unfortunately, we've had brainwashing happening in our country for years and years and years. And everything we learned as we go to school is, you can do it, little Johnny. You can do it. You can, if you give your best effort, you can do it. And we beat that into our kids until they think that they're the greatest things, things since sliced bread. And it just distances them from God's grace. Because what we've learned is that we are self-sufficient, if you pull yourself up by your bootstraps, you can get it done. And God is saying, please don't believe that lie. The moment Adam rejected me, you lost the ability to do good. We lost it. And all we've inherited, we got from Adam. And his rebellion is not great. So God, Jesus is offering us a new life to be born again, all of God's grace and supply restored to us. But he says, you must be humble to get it. I will give you this grace like a Christmas gift. But you have to say, I need it. So 
The question we ask all the time is, do you sense your own need for God? Do you sense that you need God? We read the law, and the law says, you're guilty, you're guilty. So that's good, because then we sense that God, we need God's forgiveness, and that's a good thing. And then we come time after time to church after we come to know the Lord and we learn, hey, I should probably be loving someone. I should probably be serving. I should probably be doing something. The point of that is so that you sense your need for God again. And Man, I, I need him today too. I needed him yesterday to get forgiven. I need him today to walk a God-glorifying life. And that's where we're at. He gives grace when we have a humble heart. But if we have a prideful heart, it says here, God resists you, which means God takes his hand and you're trying to get close to him. Oh, I want to please God. I want to do all this. And God takes his hand and he pushes you away from where his presence, where you can get everything you want and be happy. He pushes you away. He says, you will not approach me in pride. It does not work that way. There is one way this is going to work, and you must humble yourself and ask Jesus, my son, for his life and his resources to come to you. The more we walk in humility, the more God's hand pushes us away from what we need. Oh, it seems like my Christian life is always, I'm just tripping. I'm just being like, I'm like walking up a hill. I'm pushing a rock up a hill. I'm just a failure. I don't know what is going on. I'm so mad. I'm so upset. It's like nothing is working out. That's because God is tripping you. God is pushing against you because of pride. That Always, that's the case. If we humble ourselves, his grace is already granted to us. His grace is given to the humble. Such an amazing, amazing verse that this is. When we learn to humble ourselves and obey his command to believe in his sufficiency in the new covenant of grace you will see that this grace works. Look at 1 Peter 5.5. 5. Likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility, for God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Look, he brings up the same verse again, the same promise, the same law. God gives grace to the humble, but he opposes the proud, resists the proud. So not only is it in our relationship with God is humility required and for you to get grace, But look at this next thing. We have to demonstrate humility with each other. Humility, again, is where God grants grace. He gives grace. Humility is the only thing you can offer God. If you're thinking, what can I do to please God? Humility is the answer. Humble yourself before him. Humble yourself before each other. That is what God will bless Now, humility, though, is not a work. I'm going to go humble today. It's not a verb. (laughs) What is it then? It's a state of the heart, or what we call a relational reality. It is not a work. Two people can, can lead worship. Let's say you got a worship leader over here and a worship leader over here. One of them is humble and one of them is proud. They both look like they're serving God on the outside, but on the inside, one is honoring God through humility and one is dishonoring God and God is resisting them through pride. So it doesn't matter what we do, it's how, what kind of person we are. What's going on in our heart? Do we 
honor God in the heart, then God is controlling and springing up life out of our heart, and we're not going to be walking in sin. Does that make sense? Okay. It's a relational reality. Let's look at these last couple of verses here in Ephesians. We're just going to kind of cruise through Paul's uh, letter of Ephesians, just reading these three, four verses here, where, God, where Paul, he's just a wonderful teacher, and he explains, and you just see him kind of getting his mind blown moment by moment with grace. So look what he, how he starts. He says in verse, chapter 1, verse 6, to the praise of the glory of his grace by which he made us accepted in the Beloved. Oh, he's like, grace is so amazing. It's praiseworthy. It's glorious, just like God himself, because it is God's very life being offered to us. That's what grace is. Why do we think that law is good and performance of law is good when God is offering us his very life in grace? It doesn't compare at all, he says, to the praise of the glory of his grace. Then he says in the next verse, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace. Oh, so not only is praise glorious, uh, grace glorious and grace is praiseworthy, but now we see according to the riches of his grace. Paul is just like, you guys have no, under, no idea how much grace is available to you and how rich it is, how valuable it is. There is nothing else in your life that matters except understanding grace. There's nothing you need to understand in the Bible except his grace. There's nothing you need to look for except for his grace. And if you find grace, sell all you have to get it. That's a parable because you can't sell to get grace. It's a gift. It's a gift. It's free. Then he says, look, in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace. Paul keeps writing his letter. He's writing and he's like, man, last last time I said riches of his grace. They don't get it. You don't get it still. So I'm going to put another word in front of it, exceeding riches of his grace. So he's writing that. And he's just so excited. And he says here, in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. All of God's kindness that he has shown us through Christ Jesus is called, this is called grace. And he says, for all of eternity, you know what you're going to be doing? Not playing harps up in heaven, not floating on clouds, not that. You are going to be sitting there and God is going to be taking you on a virtual tour of how much he has done for you in Christ and how much he loves you. That is an eternity I can get behind. I don't want to play harps forever. I don't care. I want a real, wonderful relationship with Jesus where he is, it doesn't even depend on me. He's just going to be taking me and saying, look how I've loved you. Look how much I love you. And it's going to take him how long to explain how much he loves us? Eternity. Okay, Jesus is eternal. Jesus is God. Jesus cannot be measured. His love for you is eternal. His love for you cannot be measured. So it's going to take an unmeasurable amount of time for him to share with you how much he loves you. This is our life, our eternal life. And we have started it already. And every moment that we spend time in the word and every moment we feel his spirit teach us about his love and about his faithfulness, You are experiencing what all of eternity is going to be about. Your job will not matter in eternity. The job you have right now. Amen. Your marriage isn't going to matter. Your nothing in your life is going to matter except 
the way God has loved you. That is all you are going to care about. And you are spreading that love. You're spreading that eternal life as you love your wife, as you love your husband, and as you love your children, and as we love each other, and as we share a meal today and love each other and listen and care and bear one another's burdens. We are spreading this eternal life through the grace that's been given to us. We're going to give grace to each other. It's going to be amazing. This grace, I I hope we have one little part left, and I hope that you're just bursting on the inside. Tell me that you're not bored. Tell me that God's grace has not fallen on a hard heart that's just like, yeah, I know. What? What up? Look at the last part here in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 8. He says, To me who am less than the least of all the saints, this grace was given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. So he went from riches of his grace to unsearchable riches of his grace, or what? No, exceeding riches of his grace. And now he's just like unsearchable, unsearchable riches. He's like, I am so, I'm such a punk. I am such a loser. I have been the worst. I literally killed Christians. And he gave me grace when he humbled me. And now I am so blessed to just be able to preach the unsearchable riches of Christ. This is all we're ever going to talk about at this church from every day is God's grace. So if you don't want to, go somewhere else, please. This is all we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about his grace because it's unsearchable and we can't ever get to the bottom of finding the, okay, we've exhausted studies of his grace. On Tuesday mornings with the men, we're doing nitty-gritty and we're like, what are we going to do next? Well, we're probably going to study his grace because we've been doing that for five years now every Tuesday at 6 6 a.m. And we're going to keep doing it because it's glorious. That is our study for today. So, I love you guys. I'm so excited now to worship with you. We got communion. We're going to sing. Church isn't over. We're going to come sing a couple songs. And uh, we are going to love one another. If someone comes in to church and they see us and they look at us, they should see love that is supernatural. Not a love that you can find at the Bronco game or the post office or anything else. So during this time, uh, we're going to worship God for the glory of his grace. We're going to, we got, so anytime during these last songs, you can stand up and you can come over here and take a cracker and remind yourself of how he gave his body to purchase this grace for you. And you can take a a cup of juice uh, to remember how his blood was the price paid for this grace for you. And anyone may come and take this as long as you believe in your heart. If you don't believe, God says, don't test me and don't try to fake it. I, I, am, I know who believes and I know who don't. So if you don't believe, then just stay where you're at and ask, talk with God about it and say, I don't know if I believe this yet. Show me. Show me in my heart whether I believe or whether I don't. But this is open and being offered to every single one of us. He says, my life is offered to you.